As you've probably heard by now, we've teamed up with BetMGM this season. We'll be using BetMGM lines to make all of our picks, and we'll have special offers for our listeners each week. If you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC, and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic, plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager with BetMGM. Here's how it works. Download the BetMGM app and sign up using bonus code THEATHLETIC. Make your first deposit of at least $10, place your first bet on any game, and claim your voucher for a one-year subscription to The Athletic. See BetMGM.com for terms. U.S. promotional offers not available in D.C., Mississippi, New York, Nevada, Ontario, or Puerto Rico. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Available in the U.S. Call 877-8-HOPE-NY or text HOPE-NY 467-369 in New York. Call 1-800-NEXT-STEP in Arizona. 1-800-327-5050 in Massachusetts. 1-800-BETS-OFF in Iowa. 1-800-270-7117 for confidential help in Michigan. 1-800-981-0023 in Puerto Rico. First bet offer for new customers only in partnership with Kansas Crossing Casino and Hotel. Don't forget, if you haven't signed up for BetMGM yet, use bonus code THEATHLETIC and you'll get a one-year subscription to The Athletic plus up to a $1,500 first bet offer on your first wager. The Athletic. In the final episode of our MotoGP podcast with Tom Jojic, we're going to have some listeners' questions that we are going to answer with Tom. Toby Moody here. Tom is wrapped up warm down south in the UK. Um, Tom's got no idea of the questions that are, are uh, have come in, so we're going to literally be like the good old days up in the commentary box, aren't we, Tom? Yeah, good old days, eh, Toby? <laughs> good old days. So uh, without further ado, let's start off with our first question towards the east of Europe. Hi, guys. This is Adrian from Romania. I have two questions regarding technology in MotoGP. Nowadays, we have uh, right-height devices, aero, electronic suspension, and all sorts of other modern, state-of-the-art technology that goes into a MotoGP bike. My first question is, what was considered to be a brand new technology back in 2000, 2001, and even before that? And my second question is, uh, do the riders ever have the possibility to say no to the engineers? As in, no, I don't want this on my bike, don't put it on. Or do they just have to get used to the bike and ride it as it is? Thank you and keep up the good work. Thank you for your first question, Adrian. A tech that was around in the pit lane in 2000, 2001. Well, that was towards the very end of the 500cc Grand Prix era. Already they had announced that MotoGP was going to start at the beginning of 2002. Tom, you were at Team Roberts in those days. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was the triple for you. The four-stroke was on the way. Yeah. Was there much development going on in 500, even though the manufacturers knew the end was nigh? Not loads, but obviously you, you're always looking for something and you're always on, I mean, in a development path, right, Toby? Like you're coming to the end of 500s. You still always have ideas and you're like, well, hang on, we could still improve this. Our four-stroke isn't quite ready yet. So yeah, there was some new tech around at that time, but let's maybe we should focus it more on the 990s because the, that was a complete new bike, right? Like everything was new for the whole pit lane. We're talking, we're going two stroke to four stroke. We're going, you know, fuel injected. Some people carburetors um, still, they want to carry on with carburetors and other people were just like pushing the envelope to put anything new four stroke wise. So for all engineers in the background, the motorcycle didn't change that much. Obviously, we had new problems. Engine braking was the main problem to solve. A lot of slipper clutches arrived, which didn't exist in the two strokes where you didn't need them. You had this new fuel injection package that you had to try to sort out fueling. And also you had to understand how to control this engine braking and throttle delivery at the, especially with, you know, higher horsepower numbers specifically. So the, the new tech was the fact that it was a, change in class more than anything else i would say hey toby mm, certainly was certainly was and they were magical magical days but yeah. the second part of adrian's question is really interesting and as soon as i heard it i thought mm, come yeah. on tom have you ever had a rider sitting there going i am not putting my gloves on i'm certainly not putting my helmet on that is a pile of <laughs> yeah that that's a great question i i think if you if you had a world champion 
which I did work with quite a few. I was lucky enough to have that privilege, right, Toby? Um, yeah, those guys had some, they had some, you know, they had some, they could say what they wanted to say and they could do what they wanted to do because they were the guys that performed on the day. So yeah, those guys that, that had been around a bit and had won a few races, titles, they, they could easily say, no, I'm not having that. And the thing is, if you could prove it to them, you know, in testing, you would be doing this. You wouldn't throw something new at a racetrack like that. It would always be in testing. If you could prove that this is this is going to give you performance, there, there isn't a rider I know that I've worked with that would say, well, I don't like the way that looks, but man, I go 0.2 of a second a lot faster every time I put it on. They never turn that away, no matter who they are. So yeah, they could, but, but the reality is you would put something on the bike that wasn't faster. So, or made the tire life better, like whatever it was. So in, in the end, they all, everybody comes around to the fact that the lap time matters. The race distance time matters the most. That's kind of like where you really nail stuff. And then what does it do for tire wear? If it makes his job easier, he's always going to have it. But yeah, the ultimate say is they could say no, but rarely did they. So no names. Because I can, I, I know what yeah, I know your character. I can see what's going on. No names. What was the moment? Yeah. No names. No colours. No teams. No well, names. What I was the moment? What, what was the? I strop? tell you what was. What was there was a there was a, more of a strop from a team owner. So, um, let's. Here's a great one, right? We we made a swing arm once. Yeah. So you can imagine where that was because. Well, actually, it could be anywhere I worked because I was in development a lot of times, more than race engineering. So we made a swing arm once out of the same material. Yeah, so it was an aluminium, a grade of aluminium. One of them was fabricated and one of them was machined. Yeah, they had the same stiffness numbers on the stiffness rig. They looked very similar, not quite the same, but they looked very similar. And the rider preferred the fabricated one. And the lap time confirmed the fabricated one was better than the machined one. But somebody was trying to sell machined parts to customers. So imagine the strop. You got you when yeah. you prove shop window. Yeah. Shop window. Yeah, yeah. So it, it it's like the it should be the same, Toby. On paper, it looks like it should be the same. But the reality is something happens in the grain structure of that material that changes the reaction and what happens at the contact patch and what the rider feels. And in the end, you have to go with what's better for the rider lap time because you're trying to win a race, right? And that, and I'm telling you here, this is a guy that was a world champion and we almost won a race with him in a homemade bike, basically, yeah. So what, being the race engineer that day, I remember looking across going, I don't really care if it's that one or that. I didn't care. I just wanted the lap time to be better, the tire to wear better and the rider to win races. So. That was one of the moments that was like, wow, okay, this this is tough because someone's trying to sell these things to people, you know? Yeah. Because yeah. that, that wasn't lap time, that was business. Correct. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I tell you what, the rider chose the one that was better for him. You know what I mean? So. Well. That was a good conversation to listen to. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Just going for a coffee. Yeah. yeah. I'll be back. You guys have a little chat. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> What would you like in your tea? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was one of those moments, you know? Yeah, interesting. Yeah. interesting. Really interesting. interesting. But you know what it did? It gave the engineers in the background something to think about and go, well, how do we make the one that we prefer to use as good or better than the one that the rider prefers right now? Sure. And they did. So sure. that was cool. Okay, next up. Hi, guys. It's Barry from the south of England near Brighton. Um, I've got a question regarding thumb throttles. Um, we've seen a lot of guys using thumb brakes for years now. I just wondered if anyone had ever tried the thumb throttle. Um, arm pump seems to be as present as ever in MotoGP. And obviously if you've got a thumb throttle, you'd be able to keep your hand in the same position from basically the entry of the corner to the exit of the corner. Um, just wonder if anyone tried it. Uh, let me know and guys keep up the good work. Thank you. Well, Barry, we've heard about thumb brakes, but thumb throttles have never really been a thing. I can see what you're, what you're saying, what you're trying to get to, what you're thinking, what your line of thought is, but that was never a thing, really, was it, in the pit lane, Tom? Not with that kind of horsepower. No, I mean, arm pump, I mean, his question isn't irrelevant, right? I mean, an arm pump isn't, is a problem, um, 
arm pump, I don't think the throttle is what's causing the arm pump, you know, twisting that throttle. I mean, we have very short throw throttles, yeah, different actions. So we're not talking about like turning your wrist 320 degrees to get the full throttle. So, you know, we're talking about very short throw. It's a good question. I mean, snowmobiles use thumb throttles, right, Toby? It's it's not like something that you don't, you wouldn't, like, why does a snowmobile do it? Well, more than likely it's down to something freezing, you know, like, I mean, something rotating around if you get some some condensation in there. Um, well, with no, quad bikes, it's usually the thing wheeling and then yeah. amateurs holding on and twisting holding it even on. more. Yeah, yeah, and and yeah, maybe at a lower level you would, think about it but the reality is no i mean the thumb brake was down to mcdewan you know that that came around because of a ankle problem and not being able to use his ankle his foot properly so he requested that and they made that for him and some people use it and i think i think a thumb brake is a great thing for a rider especially because if you think about riding styles like if you're trying to hang off the right side of the bike and you're trying to use the rear brake at the same time which the best riders in the world can do if you put that into the left hand and give him a thumb to do it, you have way more control with your thumb than you do your right ankle. It's a great thing. I don't know why people don't use it more. Mm. So, yeah, from a throttle point of view, no. And there's really kind of no need for it. From a brake point of view, yeah, mm. there there is a need for it. Mm. We shall see. We shall see. Uh, thank you, Barry. Uh, third, we've got David, who is the other side of the Atlantic. Greetings, gentlemen. This is David in North Texas. Thank you for a wonderful season of podcasts, and please keep up the great work. Always wonderful insights. My question for Race Engineer Tom is in regard to frames and swing arms. Obviously, geometry is key, but how important is flex of the frame? Are you at a point where the amount of flex can be controlled by design, or is there still shop testing to verify the amount and direction of the flex? How often are frames replaced, assuming they are not damaged by an accident? Thank you again. It's a great question, Toby. I mean, I could talk about frame and swing arm flex for a whole podcast. So it's, <laughs> really? it's, a, it's a, yeah, it's a massive thing and they're playing with it all the time. And it's down to the tire construction, how you, you know, you're trying to use the tire. It, this question might take a little while to answer, but let's just try, let, I'll try and do it as quick as possible. Yeah. Let's try and do it with, yeah, let's compact it. Okay. So you've got, three directions of flex first of all so you've got bending stiffness so if you if you think of holding the swing arm pivot in your right hand and the and the steering head steering stem in your left hand they're at 90 degrees to each other yeah okay so let's talk about bending stiffness which is like let's call that braking stiffness so the forks are being bent backwards towards the engine yeah that's your one plane then you can talk about torsional stiffness, which is twisting. So the twisting of the headstock in relation to the swing arm pivot. Yeah. Yeah. So, you know, you th that's another plane of stiffness. And then you have what's called lateral stiffness. Lateral stiffness is imagine the motorcycle completely leaned over 58, 60 degrees of bank angle. You're holding the swing arm pivot in your right hand and the steering head is trying to deflect up to the sky. That's lateral stiffness. So you got those three planes. Those are your three stiffnesses. You also have a third, a fourth thing, which is the neutral point of that lateral stiffness. That's kind of a key element that a lot of people don't even realize exists in the world. The neutral point would be, imagine you're at bank angle, maximum angle, and you hit a bump. And that lateral stiffness has now deflected, the tire has deflected the frame, but the neutral point is above the steering head. It creates a torsional stiffness, which can throw you offline. So the neutral point is also a critical thing that we looked at. And yeah, we spent hours, days, weeks, months trying to understand stiffnesses and fine tuning it. So there's a balance. There's a balance between bending torsional and lateral that you find. And that's all related to the construction of the tire. So how stiff is the carcass? You're trying to keep the car carcass in contact with the road at all times, no matter what the surface does bumps, ripples, whatever. And so your stiffnesses affect that. So torsional stiffness, very simply, is how hard can the rider flick it, flick the bike into the corner. So that's the steering head twisting in relation to the axle, yeah? Bending stiffness is how hard can he brake so that the front tire doesn't come all the way back and hit the radiator. 
So those two things you would generally want as high as you can make, yeah? Like super, super stiff. And then lateral stiffness is what gives you the turning. And you'd want that as low as you can make without reducing, without affecting the other two, basically. So in a wet race, when you need a supple bike and, you know, yeah. that, that squidgy, softy, softly, softly feeling to go 10 seconds slower than a quick time, you know, you, you would almost want, and I'm speaking with a clean mind here, a... The, the two shock absorbers at the front that were flexing almost that would they yeah. would they have a bit of flexing almost or were they always rock solid to take the that factor out well the forks would have flex toby and and some manufacturers in the past specifically ducati played with different stiffness outer tubes and different diameters yeah to try and achieve this extra bit of bending stiffness because maybe their chassis they, maybe they couldn't achieve it in their chassis geometry slash or stiffness. So it's a fantastic question because geometry affects stiffness as much as stiffness affects geometry. So depending on how short or how long your bike was would also determine whether how stiff and how soft you would want it to be. And that was one of my fortes. Like I ended up becoming um, a design kind of target setter for stiffnesses because of, of my experience at at Team Roberts and Tom O'Kane knowing exactly what he wanted to achieve. Because I was based around Bambury, I used to go to the factory and measure stuff for him specifically. And he'd say, well, measure this stuff. And then and then you I got super interested because I was like, wow, this is cool. And and yeah, it's um it it's something that you were doing, I, I think the factories are still doing all the time. So if we put it into put it into context, what I believe is wrong with the Honda with Marquez, they're going to lose Marquez, yeah? I'll make that statement here if they're not careful. Because in 2006, when Danny rode that 990 and Nicky won the championship, Honda had a different geometry to when 2007 started with the 800s. So when Danny showed up, they thought, okay, let's make this bike really short because he's tiny. Let's make the bike as compact as possible. So what they really did was they took 25 millimeters off the front end which is a huge step, Toby. You'd never make no, that. No, even step. I know that's a lot. And, yep. and they've been fighting that problem ever since. So Bridgestone Tires solved that problem for many years. And we're, um, you know, other riders came along and won a championship on that bike. Mark came along and won that championship. But Ducati went through all this trouble to solve these problems in different ways. And they've done an amazing job of it by winning the championship this year. And a lot of that is down to stiffnesses, geometries, and aero packages. So it, they're all linked to each other, and it's definitely a key point. Thickness of aluminium, the way that you weld yeah. the aluminium, how many blobs Boy. of weld, what kind of yeah, thing. Yeah. It's, it's just, it's, can you imagine? It's a whole Can you podcast. imagine the, if you, the if skip somebody of would be... scrap <laughs> chassis outside the back of Honda? Oh, yeah. Yeah, I can imagine it. And and I've been there, Toby. So his second part of his question was, how long does a chassis last for? Well, that depends on whether you're on target or not with the rider and the stiffnesses. So let's go back to 2006. I think it was, for me, it was one of the most fascinating experiences of my life. We we started out with a, a chassis that was called A. Then we ended up, the end of the year, we went A, B, C, D, E, and then there was one, two, three versions of each of these chassis, yeah? So in that year, Kenny got it on the podium, Junior, in Barcelona. So we're already, what, six, seven races in? We were already on D3. Mm. Uh, okay, the thing back then was we, we had a lot more testing, pre-season winter testing. So by the time we got to the third winter test, we were already on the D1 chassis, right? And so, the, yeah, like you you would throw one away after one test if it was nowhere near target. That's how that's how vicious it can be, yeah? Or you would bring that chassis back and, and cut bits of metal out, put bits of metal in, you know, weld ribs in places where you want stiffness up. So it's a huge cycle of learning. Now, when we get to machined parts, it becomes maybe easier to manage, easier to control. But 100%, the... the finite element analysis programs are allowing chassis designers to fine-tune their stiffnesses before they've cut metal, put it on a rig, and back that number up. So the key to development is that your FEA numbers equal your rig numbers. And the guy running the rig and measuring the rig knows what he's doing, and your rig stiffness is perfect. So this is really 
huge development stuff. And like I said, Toby, we could talk about this all day. Mm-hmm. Eugene Laverty. He was on an old mm. Aprilia and some of the works Aprilia, Aprilia 250s. And one of the Aprilia works mechanics walked past the back of the garage one day and he went, I wouldn't Brillo pad that too much. <laughs> because it will it will just it will take the metal away and make it thinner and thinner micron yeah. by micron by hang on a minute he says you'll you'll just and how old is that chassis oh you know already it was like nine years old or something at the time yeah and the and the factory mechanic was like uh stop doing that you're making it softer yeah and and like i can remember being at the racetrack in the two-stroke days when um you were drilling holes in rib where, where you knew where the ribs were when you were trying to understand could you make it you were always trying to make things laterally less stiff and that absorbs bumps helps you turn um there's way more to it than that but but that mm. was something that i remember seeing this swiss cheese in the side of a inside of a beam that you'd never see like a maybe a guy took a picture of it from a distance you know but it, you didn't. You don't see that anymore. But um, but that type of stuff is definitely going on. And even coming back to like modern KTM's, we were. I remember we did a test in um, Aragon, where we um, we I, you were there, Toby. Remember we we grind. Mm-hmm. We were using the grinders to um, grind out the swing arm pivot area. Yeah. So that it effectively you were making the swing arm stronger, even though you were making the, the chassis weaker. So mm. the tail wags the dog. Like how how important is swing arm stiffness versus chassis stiffness is a great question that could have been asked. And that's just as important. So the interaction between those two components is huge. Because you've got a piece of steel that holds them together, not alloy. Yeah, it's a it's such a complex equation. So first of all, you have to fix your geometry. Geomet- by geometry, I mean where's the engine? Where's the output shaft? He's well, off, folks. He's yeah, off. Look, look at him. Look at him. Go, he's running. He's running down the he's road. Running, look at him. I'm, I'm there. Like uh, <laughs> Chuck's called me, and we're doing another 500. Like <laughs> imagine it. Yeah, um, yeah. Like those were the days where uh, I um, I loved it because like there was. It's not just like set like some a Japanese engineer said it to me one day. He goes, Tom, you're 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 too much of a development engineer to sit in the garage working next to the rider so we need guys in the garage that polish the package you know that's what you know the settings are that's what jeremy burgess was a master of whereas i was something more i was probably more of a person that needed to be in the background going and i was at kawasaki that was probably one of my favorite times in my career working with olivia jack in development and um you would look at the rider's problems and go, well, have we solved all the problems from a setting point of view? And then if the team had tried everything, then you, they would come to you and go, okay, what do we need to do to make this bike better? Chassis stiffness, blah, 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 that type of stuff. So, mm. yeah. Interesting, interesting. Don't cool. Brillo pad no. old chassis too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, WD-40 will get the muck off. <laughs> Looking for an assist with your credit card but can't get a hold of anyone? Luckily, with 24-7, U.S.-based live customer service from Discover, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, you heard that right. You can talk to a real human and customer service at any time. Sounds like a real game changer if you ask us. Make the right call and get the service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Hi, producer Johnny here. Interrupting the show momentarily to tell you about Roan, a clothes brand we think you'd like. I don't know about you, but finding clothes you like can be tough. Sizes can vary from brand to brand, and fabrics can be poor quality or uncomfortable. We all know a good outfit can impact your confidence and help you feel your best, and that's where Roan comes in. Their range of stylish, functional, business casual menswear helps you look good without having to think about it. It's versatile, high quality and durable, and works in a range of social and professional settings. Roan's commuter collection includes products for every occasion, including the world's most comfortable pants, dress shirts, quarter zips, polos and blazers. It also features, and get this, wrinkle release technology and gold fusion anti-odor technology for more wears between washes, so you'll be fresh and clean all day long. Roan were kind enough to send me a shirt and some pants from the commuter collection, and I can tell they're gonna be part of my wardrobe for a long time to come. The commuter collection could get you through any workday and straight into whatever comes next. Head to roan.com forward slash race and use promo code race to save 20% off your entire order. 
That's 20% off your entire order when you head to rhone.com forward slash race and use code race. It's time to find your corner office comfort. Hey guys, this is James from Jacksonville, Florida, and I have a question about concessions. In 2020, KTM had a banner year, and ever since then, they have largely struggled. And the popular talking point is that they have struggled in part due to the loss of concessions. Uh, now, Aprilia may be in the same situation. They had a great year in 2022. They lost their concessions, and maybe they'll struggle, maybe they won't. Time will tell. So my first question is, do you guys think Aprilia will struggle due to the lack of concessions and maybe to what degree? And also, uh, for Tom specifically, I'm curious about what it really feels like in a team to have an advantage like concessions versus not having it and how it really impacts the engineering and, and the team at large. Um, thank you guys very much for keeping the podcast going on the off season. Uh, keep up the good work. Okay, James, thank you for that. Uh, very good couple of angles that we can attack. Yeah, uh, spot on. KTM, they had a purple patch. And as soon as those extra test sessions and mm. those extra tires yeah. have gone, things become a lot different. And it's going to be interesting to see how Aprilia cope in 2023. Will they struggle? That's the first part of your question. In theory, yes, but in theory, no as well, because there's a spring in their step. They found things in 2022 that made them race winners, that made them lead the championship, that made them knock on the door of the championship, were it yeah. not for, let's be blunt now, two very silly mistakes that were human error, not, not engineering, as it were. So... Yeah, who knows? What's the weather going to do tomorrow? That's what I always say. You know, who knows? But they've got mm -hmm. half a chance. They've got half a chance. Well, the concessions definitely help, Toby, don't they? And the thing is, the, the purpose of the concessions is to entice the manufacturers to show up and give them something that gets them nearer and nearer and nearer the front. Because everybody knows that um, maybe, the, maybe the general public doesn't realize how tight it is. I mean, you know, when you get within a second of the, of the leaders per lap, that's actually pretty easy in this day and age, with especially with manufacturers playing this game, to get within half a second exponentially tougher. To get within a tenth of a second is really tough because we're talking the whole package, right? Can, so I think they won't struggle, in my opinion, with the concessions. I'm hoping. I, I think Aprilia looked absolutely incredible <clears throat> before the flyaways leading up to Aragon, especially that Misano test, Toby, right? Like Misano, it looked like Maverick was going to win. It looked like he was right there knocking on the door and he really had some bad races in the flyaways. I can be honest about what I think about that. And like Michelin did some stuff with, okay, we need a different construction tire. And then all of a sudden Aprilia were struggling. Yeah. Of course the rider. Yeah, you're right. The rider, you know, made a couple of mistakes and all the rest of it. But it, for me, being if I was in Aprilia, the first thing to always ask the question is, why did we struggle when they gave us this different construction tire? Why can we not use this properly? So it just sharpens their focus and makes them realize what is wh where do we need to focus? They definitely weren't struggling from a power and drivability point of view. Their top speed was absolutely phenomenal. Yeah. So I don't think the concessions are going to hurt them. I think it did hurt KTM because you know, we you got to get the constructor there and you got to get them close to the front to keep their sponsors happy and all the rest of it. Business, so it's business for Dorna. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Mm -hmm. um, the advantage of those concessions, mm. well, you've seen that yeah, absolutely up close. First hand, yeah, yeah. that's the expression I'm looking for. So yeah. you can, you you know, we, we went to Barcelona at KTM. We had a complete nightmare of a weekend, yeah. didn't we, in 2017? We were nowhere. But you, we went to Aragon on the Monday to then have a, whatever it was, a three-day test, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday. Mm. How many chassis did we have in those garages? A lot. 
Yeah, yeah. They were queuing up out the mm -hmm. car park to get them in. I um, think the testing might make a bigger difference than the engine stuff. Even though the engine stuff made a difference, because remember, Lamont, remember Toby Lamont? We had the Big Bang, yeah? It was a different yeah, yeah, style. Yeah. Flew and in the, on a private jet. Uh, no, it was Hareth. Flew in on a private jet yeah. on the Friday night. But so it we made changed a the engine difference. configuration. I think it made a bigger difference in Le Mans because Le Mans's mm. a lower grip racetrack and because mm. we had those dodgy conditions, right? So, but you're right. The testing side of the concessions rule is the biggest help. So, it, you know, if you were going to um, if you were going to try to keep or entice more manufacturers to show up and help people like Aprilia and KTM out to get to the top again, just to fight for the championship, you'd want to just give them a little bit extra testing time. And and that's what, like I always say, say back in the day, the Monday tests made a bigger difference in my time as a development engineer than anything else we ever did. Because you had the, riders hated Mondays, a lot of them, some of them loved it. You know, but you had the whole weekend and you had your reference and then you get to a Monday test and all of a sudden, you know where you are. You polish a couple things in a setting and you go, right, let's try this. We wanted to try this. But then like you've got all this stuff like, okay, we put a chassis in there, we put an engine in there, whatever. Then it gives you the target for the next generation of bike, right? Mm. Okay, maybe you can't use that like in Misano, you know, um, Fabio tried an engine that he really liked, but he can't use that until until 2023. But at least it's clear, yeah, that's better. And um, and that that's kind of the key, I think. So yeah, concessions do make a huge difference. Hi guys, um, my name is Pranjal, uh, and I'm from San Francisco, California, uh, from the United States. Uh, I love the podcast. Uh, I've become a regular listener this year. Um, I think what I value most about your show is the number of angles you guys are able to cramp in <laughs> in one hour. But anyway, coming back uh, to my question, uh, it is regarding uh, uh, the future of the inline four uh, in the sport. Uh, do you think that uh, it is possible that Suzuki decided to leave because they realized that the only way to be competitive now uh, is to change the fundamental concept of the bike? And seeing this investment required, they decided to bail. And uh, I think probably a related question to that now is, does it also cast a shadow uh, on the future of Yamaha in the sport, uh, you know, with the first signs uh, being, you know, losing the satellite team. Uh, would love you, uh, would love to get your thoughts on this. Uh, cheers. Thank you, Pranjal. Um, Suzuki leaving because of the future of the inline four? Absolutely not. Nothing could be further from the truth, I'm afraid to, uh, to let you know. Uh, it was a commercial decision. Yeah. Uh, we have yet to know the real reason but did they get cold feet over some commercial stuff that was to do with road cars and diesel gates and road bikes and stuff and whatever they probably just got the jitters and they had a bit of a panic that's my take on it bit of a mess but there we go the fairy tale actually was completed because they won two of the last three grand prix and that's how we shall remember them second part of your question do you think that the f the questionable future of the inline four might have an effect on yamaha that's actually a lot more relevant um but then again it can still be competitive can't it tom well suzuki proved how competitive their inline four was quite yeah. wow I mean, let's give credit where credit is due. I I think it's a it's a black mark on the sport when a constructor leaves the championship. Now Suzuki walking out is the worst thing that could happen. Kawasaki should be back there looking at inline fours. They love inline fours. I think that bike was absolutely. I've never seen a motorcycle dominate Phillip Island like that, Toby. Remember? You know what I mean? Like what, what a, a race, great last What a lap. racetrack to prove how good your motorcycle can be. Well, he started nowhere as well, didn't he? Yeah. And it's all Phillip Island is all about managing the tire, tire wear, and having horsepower down that monster straight and turning and changing direction. The complete package that inline four was. So Yamaha now are sitting over there looking at look how easy Rins won that race. Easy. Nothing's easy in MotoGP, right, Toby? Less but difficult. Let's say Fabio was riding at Suzuki and fighting for the championship. I think it would have been easier to to win that championship, you know? So the future of the inline four is definitely in doubt. Everybody's gone down the V4 path. It's a shame. And also losing the satellite team doesn't help Yamaha. 
having four riders, like young up-and-comers on a satellite team on last year's bike is never a bad thing. What you need to do is maybe, maybe, maybe Yamaha aren't doing it the right way anymore. Maybe that's why they lost their satellite team. Maybe they're too controlling of what they can and can't change in their satellite garage. You know, that could always, that could be the case. I don't know. But, but for me, it, um, it would be a sad day if the um, inline four leaves MotoGP because effectively they've created a, a V4 by having a cross plane, plane crankshaft and, and firing it in a big bang order, which is appearing on road bikes. So for general public, it's a win-win situation. I think you're right, Toby. I think they left because of financial commercial decisions, which is just ridiculous because it, MotoGP was something that's in their blood and they've left before and come back. Let's hope they come back. I don't know. It would be it would be a shame for them to be gone for forever and we never see it again. We don't want a one-make series. There's no doubt about that. Well, it's not it's not so, a prototype at that point. No, so. exactly. Yeah. 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 So not prototype, not prototype. let's see what happens in the future. Like hopefully... Hopefully Yamaha wins the championship in 2023 and they get another satellite team. And Kawasaki looks at that and goes, well, we can't, looking at Superbike, you know, they can't beat the V4. They can't beat the Ducati now. So maybe they should come back to MotoGP and play with the big boys mm. because mm. that's where the reality, the reality of prototype racing is MotoGP. There's no doubt about that. Mm. And it's an interesting take. This is a big aside, nothing to do with inline fours. It's an interesting take on why people come and go out of the sport because of commercial decisions, you know, a budget for a big team like Suzuki mm. would be 60 million euros, something like that. Um, yeah. That's napkin budget, as I would call it, in the bigger world of a Japanese multi-corporation. I can no tell you money. right now what the problem is. It's commercial with all of these manufacturers. It's really simple, Toby. They're, the world is selling so many motorcycles a year and it's less, yeah? All the manufacturers. So we're at saturation for buying motorcycles. If you want to sell more motorcycles, the only way to sell mo more motorcycles is to take away from other manufacturers' sales, yeah? The only way to do that right now in the global market is to sell little bikes in Asia. Correct. How do you, how do, you do that? you race Moto3. Right now we've got two manufacturers in Moto3, Honda and KTM. They're duking it out, yeah? KTM went to Moto3 specifically for that reason, to sell more bikes in Asia. And if you look at their bike sales, they've skyrocketed in Asia because of Moto3 and also because of entering MotoGP. So their commercial decisions were, we need to be in MotoGP because that's what everybody's watching and we need to, we need to make a little bike that people wanna buy. All these manufacturers make little bikes but they're not racing Moto3. So if I was Ducati, for example, dominating MotoGP this year, first thing I would do is make a Moto3 package. So I would do the same with Suzuki and Kawasaki and Aprilia and have all of them duke it out in a Moto3 class. And then all of a sudden, everybody's fighting for the sales in Asia because Moto3 is the most competitive of all the classes. Bajaj is an Indian-based motorcycle engineering company, and they bought into yeah. KTM in 2007. Correct. Seven. Long time ago. A long time ago. And all they've ever done since is increase their shareholding into KTM. So the little exactly. bikes are a Bajaj yeah. thing with, a, with in, a, in, in a partnership with KTM. Exactly. And I remember being in the meeting in KTM talk, discussing tactics, how do we sell more bikes in Asia? First of all, they needed to sell more bikes in America and the way to do that was win Supercross, so they went over there and did it. Then, and they, you know, to sell bikes in America has got nothing to do with MotoGP. Correct. It's about, super, it's about Supercross. Yeah. To sell bikes in Asia, you need to be in MotoGP and have something in the small class that these people want to buy. So if I was Suzuki, Yamaha, Suzuki, Yamaha, Kawasaki, they should all be in Moto3. You couldn't do it more affordable than what they did. So the the Dorna have done the right thing by creating Moto3. The problem is there's nobody's playing it apart from two manufacturers. What's the kind of budget to do a Moto3 bike and, and run 12 bikes? Wow. Good question. Come on, you must um, have had a vague idea when you were there. Toby, I wasn't involved in the financial side. So had I been based in Austria and let's call me a, like a German speaker, I would have been, I could have taken over that project when Sebastian Ries went to MotoGP. You know, I was in that project with Sebastian. He was in charge of MotoGP um, when it first started. And I was on the technical side. 
um, Conrad was was um, in charge of the Moto3 track support, and then he left, and they asked me to do it at the racetrack. And I was only really interested in the engineering side. Financially, Christian Kortner took that over, right? Clever bloke, really nice guy. I loved Christian. We got on well. He knew all the budgets. I, I never actually asked the question, but it it can't be crazy money like it is for MotoGP. You know, we're talking, okay, single cylinder four-stroke engine development is the cheapest four-stroke engine development. But if these manufacturers aren't doing that anyway in the background, and all of them are, come on, they all they all make motocross bikes, yeah? Single four, 250s. Yeah, yeah, and a 250 single is a, is exactly. a V4 KTM exactly. R16. Like, it's good. It's cheap. It's peanuts mm. in what they earn from sales. Mm. So I think the um, the ones that aren't doing it are crazy. It's the best mm. path. Mm. It's the easiest mm. path. Mm. And you know, you've seen it out in Asia. The the following that it that yeah. the GP has out there. The following. That How many races have we got that now? Valentino in has still up. got the following that Mark yeah. has got. The following that all of the riders have got. You know, they are mobbed. Years ago, Valentino for Yamaha, Fiat Yamaha days. He did a he did a winter promotional tour thing in the January, the February in India and he there's a picture or a video I saw of him just coming on the stage and they made a run on the stage to go and touch him. It was like the Beatles. Yeah. And there weren't enough security guards and Funny. he fled like a startled blackbird. I mean he was terrified. You know yeah. he was mobbed. And I, I can remember going to a um I can remember going to a meeting in the pit lane. Uh, it was a technical meeting when I was doing the Moto three track support. And um, they wanted to ban Desmo valves in Moto3. Somebody wanted to, hey, one of the manufacturers. And I remember sitting there thinking, that's a threat. Like, somebody feels threatened, right? And Desmo in Moto3, Ducati, they're crazy not to do it. They should do it. And I think they would... I'm not saying they should don't... Yeah, but Ferrari don't make hot hatches. No, it's not about that, Toby. It, it's about who's now... Who's grooming riders for the top class? Well, all of the manufacturers in a roundabout way. No, they aren't. No, Honda and KTM are because they're. No, the, Yamaha have got their thing with. They Valentino haven't got. A, they and, haven't got a Moto Three team. They haven't got a Moto Three bike, mate. They got a Moto Two team. Yeah, with the so VR Forty Six thing. It starts pre sixteen years old. Yeah, so these kids show up at. They can't race World Championship until they're sixteen. What are they doing between six and 16? Because everyone that I worked with that was able to win a championship and did win championships, and I won four of them at KTM, all those kids had 10 years of racing under their belt before they got there. So they're they're all 10,000 rural professionals before they've arrived in the pit lane. And that's why it's so hard to beat them, right? And so if you're a constructor, KTM slash Honda, and you're in Moto3, and you've got this path of we're choosing our riders. For example, KTM and Red Bull Rookies, great platform. So you put a kid in Red Bull Rookies. I mean, look at the guys in the top class that have been in Red Bull Rookies. Oh, um, yeah. Well, let's just talk about two of them, Brad Binder and Miguel Oliveira. Uh, Johan Zarco. Um, yeah, Johan Zarco. Yeah. I mean, look at, I mean, every single one, apart from Spanish Championship, yeah, CEV. So... Like if you, Honda, Jorge Martin, wow, Honda, yeah. like they give so much to CEV to to get these like uh, Mark Marquez onto their bike. Mark Marquez was a Red Bull rookie's mate. I mean, it's every single. So how do you if you're Ducati slash Yamaha slash Suzuki and you haven't got this anymore because we had that in 500, 125, 250 days, yeah. If you haven't got this path, I think you're a, you're you're in a disadvantage. Ducati have got it. They they've nailed it right now because they've 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 sorted the technical side of it and got their bike working for them through their technical decisions and everybody wants to ride one now. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Anyway, we uh, that was an interesting. Um, it was a good question. Very good. Question. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It. I think it. There's a lot to that question, and it's it also answers like the satellite team thing. Suzuki never having a satellite team. Mm. That didn't help them, I don't think. Interesting to see how Aprilia go with one in 2023. It'll help them, yeah, definitely.
And now, two pigeons bemoaning the fact you can stream DirecTV satellite-free. You see this? A family watching baseball on DirecTV with no satellite dish in sight. Let's heckle them. You call that changing the channel? Choke up on the remote, buddy. I hope getting all these games on DirecTV makes up for your mother not pre-chewing your sunflower seeds. DirecTV has the most MLB games. Visit DirecTV.com. Claim based on total games offered on national and regional sports networks with choice package or higher. Availability of RSNs varies by zip code and package. High-speed internet service required. Terms and restrictions apply. Hi, this is Annie, currently calling in from Scotland. I'm a relatively new fan of MotoGP and to motorsports in general. As I've been following along for the past season, I hear a lot of talk about the different riding styles of different riders. How, for example, Fabio has a very smooth riding style that's similar to Lorenzo's, uh, while Mark has a very aggressive riding style, and that Mir's riding style is potentially well suited to the concept of the Honda. My question is if you can give me any pointers on what I should be looking out for when I watch practices and races so that I can be better at picking out and understanding these riding styles for myself. It's easy to see the line that someone takes through a corner, but I'm wondering how that's connected to the different descriptions of riding styles and in general what else I can look out for. I've just started to learn how to ride a bike, but I'm a long way off having track days and having even minutely relevant experiences that will help me understand what I'm watching. So in the meantime, I'd love some pointers if you have any. Uh, I'll be catching up on old seasons over the break, so I really look forward to making good use of any advice you have. Thank you, Annie. Question about uh, riding styles and how they all differ. I, I think the the person that can see the most about the riding styles is actually an ex-rider who's trackside, yeah. like a, a, a Kenny Senior yeah, or, yeah. or a Valentino watching. But also, Tom, you've seen smooth riding styles with the data. Yeah, yeah. I've seen... It's a great question. I mean, especially, like, Annie, thanks for that question. It's kind of nice, to be honest. And the fact that you're just starting out and trying to get better, like, maybe, you know, we can give some insight in how to do that. But, but for sure, I loved looking at data and understanding how riders were doing it. I loved watching races, like especially the smaller classes, Toby. I think it stands out more in Moto2 and Moto3 because there's less electronics. And also like it, things are happening slower because you're going slower, right? They're not going- You've got less power. Yeah, they've got to carry exactly. it through. They're not going slow, but yeah, they're they're using everything they can. And it- Because what's a Moto3 bike power? Oh, you're lucky if you got 65, 60, 65. If you, you got to think, you know, you got to multiply uh, 250, you multiply it by four. So let's say 60, that six times four is 240. If you're seven times four, you're, you know, 280. That's a lot of power out of a little 250, yeah, four stroke. So it's got to be around there somewhere between 65 and 70-ish, right? And it's not a lot of power and they weigh nothing, right? They're quite light. So yeah, you would look at... You would look how how a rider places himself on his motorcycle, what he does. It, there's such little subtle things too that they're doing that we don't really realize they're doing. And until you start talking to them and asking them questions. And uh, I was very lucky, Toby, you're right, to work with a lot of world champions, see a lot of data, understand how they're doing it. Even, you know, even we used to play around some of the setting stuff you'd have is, for example, you'd have like a handlebar that moved his hands 10 millimeter further back along the bike. Then you'd take 10 millimeter off the seat pad and you'd move the foot pegs back 10 millimeter. So if the bike overloaded the front too much, the rider, a clever rider would say, well, when I sit back, like Oyama was extremely good at that. When I sit further back, I make the bike better. So you would do that and then you'd understand, well, what are you doing in riding style to do this? Are you using rear brake before you you know, before you grab the front brake fully to sit the rear down, which they're doing now with electronics, which is, I think, wrong. I think they shouldn't be allowed to do that. It would be better to, yeah. it's better that the riders control the bike more and then you see the best rider out there. So when you're, when you're looking at stuff on TV, like her question about, you know, watching during practices, what should I be looking out for? Well, as an engineer, my thing was always like, okay, who's done the long run first? What's their... What tires have they got on the bike? Are they doing their fat? Are they only just throwing the soft tire at it to do the fast lap? Or can they do like a really good lap time on a used medium tire, which is more of your race tire? That's kind of stuff you're looking for. Are they consistent? Like, do they always do really good lap times or are they just doing one off following someone? Like if, if a rider's following someone, forget it. You know what I mean? 
the, the winners go out there and do it by themselves. They never look yeah. to follow. But being smooth is, 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 I mean, it is the key for some bikes, but of course it's not necessarily the key for other bikes, as we saw with well, the difference between a, a, a Yamaha Lorenzo at his peak mm. and a Marquez Honda at their peak. They were two different animals. And they, they are. And she's right. Fabio probably rides the bike much more like Lorenzo did. And maybe that's because that's how a Yamaha needs to be ridden. And, I, and it used to be, you know, that, that Yamaha was always a smooth ride, rider's bike. They, they request that from the rider. And you're right. Like some riders like Amar need to ride a, a much more aggressive package. And a Honda was always a point and squirt bike. It was always like hard on the brakes, get on its side, pick it up fast. Like Mick Dewan described how you ride a two stroke and get it on the fat part of the tire and launch it out the corner. Cause it always had like stoner too. Exactly. And, and you need to ride a, a bike that's maybe doesn't turn how you want it to turn like that. So the riding styles, it is related to what the rider did as a kid, you know, like if they were dirt trackers and motocrossers, they're, they're much more of a hard breaker, not spend a lot of time at lean angle. Whereas if they were like mini moto riders, like Valentino, you know, racing around go-kart tracks on little bikes and then one, two fives, two fifty two strokes, they were more acceptable. And even Lorenzo to being smoother and like clicking it out, like super smooth. So on, on data, you would see this beautiful brake pressure traces being traded front and rear brake pressure crossing over at the apex when the throttle's on like you see this stuff and you see in the wet you'll see the smoothest riders are the fastest wet riders yeah that yeah. that's like you can't go from being like this so was olivier smooth yeah was yeah, he on the data super Jack? yeah super smooth yeah. kenny jr was one of the smoothest riders I've ever worked with. And I can remember showing Hiroshi Oyama data to show him something that Kenny Jr. did, 2D data. And he even likes, like, here's a 250 world champion, yeah? And he just, his eyes lit up and his, they went big and he went, wow. And I didn't tell him who it was. I just said, look at this. And he said, wow, he's so smooth. And like, even riders know when they're looking at data, right? And <laughs> by smooth, it's like you see something like how they picked a throttle up at the apex. So they're carrying crazy amount of corner speed. Yeah. And it's like this, like beautifully gradual, you know, rise. Yeah. Gradient curve, right? Like where, mm. and then, but it's also not, it's not like a slow, but it's just, it's meticulously s super smooth. Yeah. Mm. And mm. that's kind of like, it's hard to see that when you watch in the television because everything's happening so quick. And also, I'm not saying they don't do a good job, Toby, like the camera crew and all the rest of it, but you can't watch them for long enough to see it. That's why, like what you said is 100% right. Kenny Senior would go stand on the side of the racetrack and you could see what guys were doing on the side of the racetrack and you could see who was smooth and who wasn't, who was doing it right, who was in the right position. It's also, it's also about positioning yourself in the right point in the racetrack, right, Toby? And I think um, one of the greatest discussions I've ever had was in 93 Harada shows up on a Yamaha 250 never been outside of Japan I know his crew chief he was a Japanese man yeah and um, he said I was I shared a room with him the crew chief and we were talking one day and we were talking about smooth riders and how these guys are how can these guys be so good like how did they get this right and he said you know what Tetsuyu did he goes they used to walk the racetrack together and because this Japanese engineer had been in the world championship for quite a few years like he would help him a lot and he says what he blew me away one day he goes we're walking the racetrack and i said to him well, what what when you're walking around what are you looking at and he goes i'm looking at where i need to place myself on the exit so that i can open the throttle harder so he did every racetrack in reverse so he walked around and said i if i if i'm here i can pick up speed and it was just like i remember thinking to myself now that's just like, you know what I mean? The brain works in different ways. Like other people, people work in different ways. So what I loved about that conversation was the fact that this guy was prepared to put all this extra time in to understand how to do it. And then he won the championship as a rookie. First time out. That's kind of like, yeah. Like, so how do you describe, how do you see that as writing style? I, I don't know. It's, it comes with experience, Toby, right? Like by standing and looking and watching 
And when you're watching the coverage, what you need to look at is, and one of the key elements of the smaller classes is knowing how to pick the bike up without picking it up too fast, especially when you're talking about Moto3, right? You've got these little bikes with not a lot of power. If a rider like picks the bike up too aggressively, you get on the fat part of the tire, well, you haven't got this MotoGP power to drive the thing forward and then use the arrow to stop it wheeling and all the rest of it. So it's almost like back in the day, even the 500 guys, remember in Barcelona, Toby, they used to, we used to, they used to come all the way across the racetrack out of the last corner yeah. to stay on to stay on the on the shallow part of the tire so that the revs stay high and then they pick it up later and then they'd even like bank to the left going down straight to not be on the top part of the tire because you kill the engine you kill the acceleration yeah. so it's like something like that looks aggressive but it's mm. not it's much more of, of a subtlety that you learn over time and when you watch guys on the racetrack doing that kind of stuff or picking it up really slowly then you see something in a rider that's like, okay, cool. That guy understands what he's doing. Mm. And when you do a track day, Annie, uh, don't discount talking to yourself into a corner. Yeah. Keep it smooth. Keep it smooth. Break, 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 break. Carry the speed. Carry the speed. That's what I would always do as a yeah, as yeah. a kind of middle top exactly. group track dayer. Um, or, or is just just keep the speed. Keep the speed. Keep the speed. Yeah. Anybody can blast it down the straights. Learn how to use the rear brake. So, you know, the rear brake is for turning and the front brake is for stopping. So even when you're just riding around a car park, just trying to find a place to park or riding, you know, in your local neighborhood, you know, press on the rear brake when, you've, when you're still moving forward. Don't, don't close the throttle. And then, like, try to turn in a little bit with the rear brake and the throttle both on and let then let the... Let the th then close the throttle and see what happens. Like, I'm not talking about stamping on the rear brake. I'm talking about learning how the subtlety of using a rear brake. And what you'll find is you can go you can go walking pace and go around cones because you've got the rear brake on and you're slowly feeding throttle in. And then you got to learn how to do that with speed entering a corner. So what I would always do as a amateur club level racer, you know, I would try and understand where can I use my rear brake more, but not abuse it so that you can carry more speed with, because your rear contact patch is massive compared to your front. So use that to your advantage because rear pushing the rear brake helps you turn. It's like that video of the uh, California Highway Patrol guy on the uh, Harley <laughs> going through the cones. That's what he's doing in there. Yeah, that's exactly it. And you can do it on a bicycle. Actually, that's the best way to practice mm. it. Do it on a mountain bike where you're sitting upright and you can, you know, you're you're not clipped in. You're just flat chewed. And then you can actually come to a stop and have the rear brake on pressing on the pedals. It's Bicycles work the same as motorcycles effectively. Mm. It's only when you get above 20 kilometers an hour that you get the gyro effect on a bicycle where you can push to the right, turn to the right. You have to be going fast enough for yeah. that to happen. But at the low speed stuff, a, a motorcycle is going to fall over like a bicycle. So let us know how you get on. Yeah, good Meanwhile, luck. Meanwhile, <laughs> let's just come a little bit further south here in the UK. Um, greetings, uh, James from Yorkshire in the UK. Um, absolutely love the podcast. Um, I've always watched Formula or Endurance Racing, and it's really brought the nuances of, of MotoGP alive for me. Um, so my question is, um, in car racing, more teams and entrants using equipment means more data, more development, better performance. Given Yamaha doesn't have a satellite team, is this going to adversely impact their 2023? Or do the, do the rules around uh, engine freezes negate that? Um, you've also previously mentioned Yamaha. Um, it's been less encosseting with satellite teams. Are you getting any vibes or rumours that, that might be changing? Uh, and where is the next Yamaha satellite team likely to be, uh, if anywhere. That's probably more than one question, but you get the gist. What's the crack with the Yamaha satellite stuff? Love the podcast. Thanks so much. Bye. Thank you, James. The uh, the fact of more bikes, more teams, more data, well, twas ever thus. But Yamaha, they're not stupid. They certainly haven't fallen off a Christmas tree, have they? And they've got no. more gigabytes of data from one weekend than some people can ever even dream of, let alone 30, 40 years in the sport. 
um, of data logging full stop. And, oh, yeah, we tried that in 1979 and it didn't work. You know, it's in the script, isn't it? There's some old boy somewhere at the back of the workshop going, that just won't work. Mm. But it is a necessary evil nowadays that you've got to have more data. But do you think that that depth of knowledge, Tom, will get them out of jail in 23, particularly with the engine freeze? Well, my feeling is Yamaha need a satellite team. This is a this is a one-off, let's hope. I'm hope I'm hoping someone is going to go, you know, we we can't we can't make this Ducati work. Let's go back to Yamaha or something like that or let's go to Yamaha like because Ducati have too many teams next year for me. So, what Yamaha have done right is um, you know, they've looked in the pit lane and seen okay, we've lost our satellite team. Suzuki have left the paddock. Tom O'Kane's available. Bang. Tom O'Kane and Yamaha. We discussed that before, right? Now you've got a guy that brought a championship to Suzuki that's got more than your and my time in the pit lane. Hey, Toby. He's a legend of the sport. I was lucky enough to work under him for quite a few years. I wish I could have worked with him more, especially in the later part of my career being in the pit lane. Would have been awesome to hook up again. And I think they'll use Tom to his maximum. And also, hopefully, somebody will come along and, and um, use Yamaha again. But you're right. They've got this depth of information. They know how their motorcycle works. Tom has already worked with Yamaha in the Kenny days. So he knows how Yamaha works. So he's still wor- he's working with engineers he used to work with. And he's supporting the crew chief. So can they, can they win the championship again? I think so. I think Fabio will be will be recharged by this and then maybe um more data is always better the question's right like you're it's going to hinder them but in some aspects maybe it'll focus them better because now they know we've got to win otherwise we might be out the door soon uh correct correct and it's all very well having lots of data but you still got to be able to interpret well exactly there's no point in just having a satellite team and then not letting them do stuff like in my experience, you're better off having a satellite team with free reign and saying, okay, you know, you guys are outside our box, our window of settings, um, and then reeling back in when they're 10 seconds a lap off the pace. But they were like, if you think back to, you know, when um, Fabio moved up and Frankie Morbidelli, they were on satellite Yamahas winning races, yeah? And even the Tech 3 days, we had... Cal and Dovi winning races on satellite Yamahas. No, they didn't. No, they didn't. The first, didn't no, 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 no. Tech I'm sure first did. victory was Miguel Oliveira on a KTM. Yeah, was yeah, it yeah, really? Yeah. yeah. Wow, you got me there. Okay, well, Dovi was close. I mean, yeah, Cal was but they close. Didn't win a race. Though, yeah, wasn't it? Yeah, okay. Oh, you're right. Cal won the first time he, he went was on to LCR. He was riding for Honda. LCR. Yeah, okay. Sorry about that. But, anyways, um, yeah, see how it's a good thing you're here, Toby. You had to keep me honest. <laughs> <laughs> When it comes to that type of stuff. Um, yeah, you're right. Sorry, you're right. So, like, for me, was was the maybe Hervey should have won some races in Tech 3. Maybe Yamaha handcuffed him too much. I don't know. Probably, yes. You don't want the wrong bike winning. Yeah. No, I, I mean, maybe I don't think that would have been the case. But, oh, oh yeah, uh, Zarko was close, wasn't he? Also, was it? Yeah. Zarko's still yet to win a race. Yeah. Oh, I feel sorry for Johan Zarko. Yeah, and yeah, me. he should. He's top he, bloke. Sh- he should have won some by now. But anyways, um, yeah, they need to. Um, they definitely need to sharpen the blade and win this championship. And other people will then be going. We need to be on a Yamaha, and then it needs to spread out a bit better, doesn't it? Mm-hmm. Yes. Well, uh, I think the salient point from that parts of this uh, this conversation is Yamaha got to sort themselves out because otherwise the sort of Damocles may well already be hanging over their heads but uh, let's see how that one shakes out. Tom, as always uh, thank you so much. The many I won't say days, it'll be years that you've had cumulatively away from home and the tens of thousands of (laughs) miles that you've trodden up and down pit lane, Mm. uh, even more than Neil Spaulding, no doubt. Um, Did you ever have a fallout with Neil because he snapped a picture and, hang on a minute, we didn't want that out there? No, Neil was, um, I like Neil Spaulding. Uh, By the way, I haven't spoken to Neil for a while. If he's listening, we should have a chat, mate. But anyways, he... um, he took loads of pictures and 
and was always like harassing us, right, Toby? <laughs> but, in a I mean, good way. In he a had good, a very yeah, good way. In such a, it, I mean, Neil showed up in 990, so he showed up the four stroke era and, and like he did a great job, I think, of, of from a guy that came from a non engineering background, right? Like he under, he started to, he understood the package really well and asked the right questions. No, we never, we had some heated discussions about how stuff worked because <laughs> he has his idea. But I never had a problem with anything Neil did. I think, um, if anything, fair play to Neil, because I, I can recall calling him and saying, have you got a picture of this? I know. <laughs> and like, he was like, dude, I can't give that to you. And, 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 um, and good, you know, fair play to him. For, he didn't, he didn't yeah, mess on anybody. He did have a picture of what I was looking for. Yeah. Um, but, um, but then yeah. you lose all the trust when that happens as a journalist. Because well, if he it. gives that picture to you, he yeah. will give your secret pictures well, exactly. to the next team. And then and, there's no trust. Yeah. And I had that issue when I was in Moto3. Like teams would ask for data. You go, I can't give you that. Like I can tell you what you're doing wrong. I can take, like we had everybody's data. And I would go, look, I'll go back to the truck and look at your rider versus our fastest guys. And, then I would come back and go, well, you've got third gear wrong. He's using too much brake here. He's not using any rear brake. He should carry corner speed, stop there. And then you'd give him, I'd give him a track map and say, this is where you're losing and this is why you're losing it. And then you haven't lost anybody's trust because if that got back to the faster guys, they just laugh and go, well, whatever. You know, the fast guys always sort it out on the racetrack anyway. Mm, right? But the thing so, about Moto3 as well is they know that there's 12 bikes out there and they know yeah. that there's only two manufacturers and they know that exactly. there's going to be a bit of spread across yeah. the other 11 bikes if you've yeah, got the 12. Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. You just have to be professional about it and, and not show other people data, other people's yeah. data, especially because we didn't do that. We Our contracts were that we, we got the data from a development point of view. Um, so, so, yeah, like... Yeah, I took a lot of pictures myself. Not as many. I mean, Neil's got a back catalogue of amazing pictures. Which, He's got three books, Tom. Yeah, I know. <laughs> I've got one of his books that he signed for me that I think I get a mention in the first one, which is kind of nice. So uh, thanks, thanks, Neil. Yeah, I do. did. It was yeah. um, it was good. So yeah, good days. Anyway, uh, Tom, thank you so much. It's been great catching up about everything MotoGP, old, current hypothetical yeah engineering business um it's as always been uh been good fun and uh i don't know how we well i know i know obviously we brush shoulders first time off because mm. you were at team roberts and i would always come and drift through team roberts because it was a british team and yeah i would carry spare parts out on a on a thursday because you guys had gone on a tuesday and yeah. there was only one thing just still on the cnc on, <laughs> by the time you'd left to, yeah. to go to heathrow um but we uh, we had some good times and and then you came to the box i remember we were you came to australia yeah and we came out of the box was it we came out of the yeah. box and we sat on the grass and didn't we watch on the big screen of formula one grand prix we did yeah 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 that was the the year that KTM pulled out and we didn't finish the season, right? Remember? And then That's we did right. the deal with Honda Engines. Yeah, I came to Australia. And um, yeah, it was a good laugh, wasn't it? Sitting at Phillip Island watching motorcycles go around. For me, it was weird to be at a race and not be in the garages, right? Con yeah, I remember you were a bit unsettled, yeah. Yeah, yeah. But, uh, yeah. but hey. Yeah. It's always anyway, good. Yeah. anyway, good time, Tom. Uh, don't leave it so long. I'm sure we will catch up again soon. Thanks, Toby. Tom Jojic, ladies and gentlemen, uh, crew chief up and down the uh, MotoGP pit lane over many, many a year. Thank you for sending your listeners' questions in. We look forward to catching up with more MotoGP podcast stuff soon. Thank you and speak soon. The Athletic.